the National Archives podcast series, No Vote, No Census, Suffragettes and the Census Boycott, presented by Elizabeth Crawford. This event was recorded on the 1st of October 2011 as part of the Celebrating the Census Conference at the National Archives, Q. Well, I think we'll start. It's uh, on the dot of uh, 2.30. And uh, for this talk, we'll be firmly back in 1911, just totally immersed in those few months. Um, because in February 1911, the Women's Social Political Union and the Women's Freedom League, two of the societies campaigning for votes for women, called on all their members and sympathisers to boycott the forthcoming census. And this cartoon, which was published in the WSPU, as it was called, this is Mrs Pankhurst Society um, Journal, Votes for Women, um, this cartoon uh, depicts the suffragettes' dilemma. John Burns, the minister in charge of the census, is on the one hand begging her to provide the requested information, and on the other, as a member of the cabinet, he's denying her what she desperately wants, the parliamentary vote. Now, a hundred years later, we're in a position to investigate how suffragettes resolved this dilemma. And I must say, having listened this morning to the talk on the digitisation of uh, the census, I mean, I'm immensely grateful. It's provided a great deal of um, information as well as entertainment in uh, searching through for this project of seeing how the suffragettes reacted to the boycott. And to do this, I'd like to discuss four categories of response individual protests, mass evasions, individual evasions, and census compliance. Each of these four categories can in turn be considered from four angles. That of the protester, that of the enumerator, or rather his masters, uh, the registrar general, and ultimately uh, the local government board, that of the contemporary public, and that of us here today who are interested in the 1911 census. So let's um, begin with the group that I've termed individual protesters. These are the women, and indeed some men, who not only refused to supply the information requested, but annotated their census forms with reasons for their refusal. And this is one such protester, Hertha Ayrton, perhaps at that time Britain's most eminent woman scientist. And here is her census form. Now, I'm not sure, you at the back, I mean, there's problems with viewing, but uh, she's uh, written across it, and I'll tell you what she said. She said, How can I answer all these questions if I have not the intelligence to choose between two candidates for Parliament? I'll not supply these particulars until I have rights as a citizen, votes for women. In this defiant statement, she expressed the reasoning that lay at the heart of the call to boycott the census. Why should a woman carry out the duties of a citizen when she was denied the citizen's most important right, the right to participate in the election of the legislature? Now, this question was by no means novel, for by the spring of 1911, women had been campaigning for the parliamentary vote for 45 years. From the presentation to Parliament in 1866 of the first uh, petition calling for women to be given the vote, uh, that is, on the same terms as it was uh, to be given to men, women had used every political instrument at their disposal in the attempt to achieve full citizenship. Although there had been times when the, campaign thought they were coming, the campaigners thought they were coming close to manoeuvring uh, an enfranchisement bill through Parliament, they had not yet succeeded. And perhaps we need to take a moment to think why women did, did want the vote. 
The dominant reason was the belief that their interests would never be protected until they were in charge of their own destiny. Parliament passed, uh, for instance, factory acts preventing women from undertaking various types of work, I mean arduous work, but this could be seen as a benevolent parliament doing its best to protect women workers, but women saw only that without being consulted they were being denied their, their livelihood. However, although they'd not won the right to the parliamentary vote, during the, past, uh, the last 30 years of the 19th century, women had had considerable success in manipulating the lesser levers of the political machine to allow them access to various areas of local government, both as the electors and, indeed, as the elected, holding office in a variety of posts, for example, as poor law guardians and members of the school board. But at the turn of the century, a series of measures, such as the 1902 Education Act, which withdrew women's uh, eligibility to serve on the school boards, began to reverse all these hard-won advances and convince women, such as Mrs. Emmeline Pankhurst, who'd been involved with the suffrage campaign since the 1880s, that the time had come to change the tactics of the campaign. So in 1903, she founded the Women's Social and Political Union, which was known as the WSPU, to bring together women who were prepared to take action more direct than the purely constitutional political methods that had been used in the past. At first, this direct action consisted merely of heckling cabinet ministers at public meetings, something that the non-militant campaigners had never done. They were usually the ones that were heckled. And the WSPU quickly realised that such public demonstrations uh, attracted publicity and it was now recognised that publicity was essential to the success of their campaign. So for over the next seven years or so, the WSPU and a breakaway group, the Women's Freedom League, known as the WFL, uh, it's all uh, acronyms, alternated uh, shows of dignified public spectacle, processions through the streets of London and provincial cities, um, and... uh, then alternated with increasingly physical demonstrations, throwing stones through windows of government buildings, etc. The perpetrators, the suffragettes, were then imprisoned, creating yet more publicity. And the government, meanwhile, toyed uh, with the campaigners, repeatedly breaking or bending any promises that the suffrage societies, both constitutional or militant, extracted from them. Certainly the government had rather more pressing uh, matters to concern them, for after the second 1910 election held at the very end of that year, the Liberal government began its sixth year in office with a greatly reduced majority and now had to rely on support from the Irish Nationalists and the Labour MPs. Moreover, the government with Asquith as Prime Minister while maintaining a watchful eye on the rest of the world, particularly on Germany, was attempting to secure major constitutional reform for Lloyd George's 1909 People's Budget had been repeatedly blocked by the Upper House and it was clear that the Liberals' programme of welfare reform, which included the old age pension, would not get on the statute book until the power of the House of Lords was curbed. So, viewed from the Cabinet Room, the women's suffrage campaign was merely one and a lesser one at that of the government's many irritants. Naturally, the suffrage campaigners saw matters in a different light, and from the doldrums in which it had languished at the beginning of the century, by 1911 the campaign had gathered a real momentum. The interest aroused by the WSPU's activities had brought members flocking not only to their banner, but in even greater numbers to that of the older Constitutional Society, the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. 
1910, the WSPU had called a truce on its increasingly active militancy and with the other suffrage societies had supported the work of a conciliation committee which was formed from members of all the parliamentary parties working to promote a bill to enfranchise at least uh, some uh, women. And now at the beginning of the 1911 parliamentary session, both suffragettes and suffragists, while hoping for the ideal of a government measure, more realistically placed their hopes in a new conciliation bill to be brought forward by a private member. Active militancy was on hold, but the opportunity for passive resistance offered by the forthcoming census was too good an opportunity to miss. So who were those protesters who, like Hertha Ayrton, refused to provide information on their census forms? Some had already been involved in active militancy. Now, this is Mrs. Edith Howe Martin, who was one of the uh, WFL leaders, and she was an instigator of the call to boycott. She'd given up her position as a maths lecturer at Westfield College to devote herself to the suffrage campaign, but back in 1906, she had been in prison. However, since then, rather than allowing herself to be, as it were, prison fodder, she had devoted her energies to organising the WFL's political campaign. And what can we learn from Mrs. Howe Martin's census form? Well, as I've mentioned, let's look at it from the four angles. From Mrs. Howe Martin's point of view, she's made her protest, made her point. No votes for women, no information from women. Legislation without representation is slavery. And where the signatures required down at the bottom um, has been written, the occupier of this house is uh, not a person, only a woman. See Decision of the House of Lords, Scottish Graduates Case, 1908. The latter case ruled that a university degree did not, didn't entitle a uni woman university graduate uh, who was deemed, unlike a man, not to be a person in the eyes of the law, to vote in their university constituency. And Mrs Howe Martin is a London University graduate and she usually added BSc after her name on writing articles or writing letters, as she often did, uh, to the papers, clearly took exception to this decision and has added this particularly personal comment. And not only has Mrs Howe Martin refused information, but so has a husband whom uh, the numerator has labelled a scientific man. Anyway, here is another very adamant refusal. You can see it's a lengthy refusal. Annie Ball was a nurse and WSPU supporter who ran a nursing home in Barnstable. And hers is one of the lengthiest annotations. <coughs> I'll read it out to you because you won't be able to see it. It's quite interesting. Sir, she wrote, as one of a large body of unenfranchised women taxpayers, householders and employers, I have conscientious objections to filling in this paper. We have no guarantee that the statistics supplied by us will not be used to increase our disabilities instead of removing them. <laughs> We consider also that if we are capable of filling in a complete census paper, we are capable and make a cross on a ballot paper at a general election. When the government allows qualified women a voice in the making of laws they are forced to obey and the spending of money which they are forced to contribute to the state, a privilege granted to men, we shall not refuse our help. We can now see that the registrar has written on the form, that's the writing in red, this is a nursing home. From information I have received from private sources, the number of persons enumerated above may be taken to be correct. There were no patients on the premises on census night. However, the Votes for Women, the WSPU newspaper, reported that on census night, Nurse Ball had opened her nursing home to women who wanted to evade the census. And the registrar doesn't seem to have known this, so did she or did she not give shelter to women evading the enumerator? The majority of um, <coughs> protesting forms have 
uh, I found have been those of middle-class women, women of independent means, many of them unmarried, who could afford to ignore the threat of the £5 fine for which they, uh, those who failed to comply um, were liable. Protesters included a number of women doctors whose earnings required them to be taxpayers and whose self-confidence as professional women allowed them to defy the enumerator. <clears throat> One doctor who protested in this way was Louisa Garrett Anderson. Her mother, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, Britain's first woman doctor, and in 1911 a prominent uh, supporter of the WSPU, discreetly evaded the census. But uh, Louisa Garrett Anderson was a founder member of a group called the Women's Tax Resistance League, which joined with the WSPU and the WFL in calling for the boycott. Many of those who we now can see returned their census forms annotated with protest were already known as active militants, like Louisa. Um, however, this may be more a reflection of the restrictions of the research than reality, that's because, as you all appreciate, there's an inherent problem in attempting to find census boycotters. In order to conduct a search for someone, you have to know of their existence and have then to provide the search engine with sufficient data to allow you to identify with certainty the individual you're seeking. <clears throat> I'll discuss this difficulty in a minute, but the result has been that at first the search, which I initially conducted with a fellow historian, Dr. Jill Liddington, was for suffragettes about whom we did know something. Although the data is still weighted towards the known activists, and they tended to be known because they were militant, I've subsequently discovered a number of previously unknown protesters. These, for instance, included, I mean, just down at this level, several boarding, women boarding housekeepers and the owner of a Wilsdon laundry, the type of woman who couldn't afford to jeopardise her business uh, by involving herself in physical militancy, but who was prepared to risk a £5 fine. Although I found very few <coughs> working-class uh, women returning forms in which they refused to give information, here is one intriguing Hampstead return. If you can, probably can't see it, but it's the household of uh, Mr Levy, and he's completed details about his family. But the three female servants have refused information, being, as the enumerator has written in, suffragettes. And one must think what a liberal employer Mr Levy must have been to allow his household return to remain incomplete in this way. But other men went further and made protests on behalf of uh, women. Here's the form of Stanley Mappian, a director of the Regent Street Julius. He's written, As a protest against the attitude of the government in denying women the right of citizenship, I refuse to fill in or to sign this paper. And uh, this is interesting confirmation uh, that Mappin and Webb's range of suffragette jewellery, as advertised in the Votes for Women, was inspired uh, by an interest in the principle of women's suffrage rather than, uh, or as well as, spotting a commercial opportunity. So we can see some suffragettes did regard their census forms as a legitimate site for protest, but what was the reaction of the enumerators? For instance, what did the enumerator, Mr Reginald Pierce, do when on Monday the 3rd of April he turned up at 38 Hogarth Hill, the Howe Martins' house in leafy, cottagey Hampstead Garden suburb, and was presented with their form adorned with the slogan and devoid of information? Well, like all enumerators, Mr Pierce had been well briefed and had only to report the lack of compliance to his registrar, who was Mr. Alfred E. Taylor. Indeed, on his rounds, Dr. Mr. Pierce encountered more than one protesting form. For uh, Another was that of Dr. Letitia Fairfield, who was the sister of uh, the writer Rebecca West. And around the corner from the Howe Martins, um, 
at 180 Willifield Way, and Mr Stockman and his wife had also refused to fill in their form. I refuse all information to a government which governs me without my consent, and in the absence of the legal occupier, a woman, not a person. So they've got much the same uh, message. Mrs Margaret Stockman was what one might think of as a typical uh, resident at that time of Hampstead Garden Suburb, being a member of the Fabian Women's Group. However, she was also a supporter of women's suffrage rather than it was more usual uh, amongst the more diehard socialists of universal adult suffrage. One aspect of research into the census continues to be the discovery of other such relatively unknown suffrage sympathisers. As you can see, the Stockman's form has been annotated in red ink and signed by the registrar who declares particulars inserted from information obtained by instructor of the registrar-general. This inserted information consists only of the bodily existence of Mr. and Mrs. Stockman and their female servant and an approximation of their ages. It was the enumerator's careful compilation of summary books that had proved useful in spotting protesters and invaders. For in this case, I had not known to search for Mrs. Stockman, but came across the couple simply because they appeared in the same double-page spread of Mr. Pierce's summary book as the High Martins. Uh, there are up at the top, and they're ringed in this particular one. I haven't found a similar pattern necessarily elsewhere, but it sort of drew my attention to it. And um, the numbers, uh, the figures that Mr Pierce had first entered in the population column had been altered by the registrar to affect what was considered the true position for the Stockmans, like the Howe Martins, the Mappins, and all the other individual protesters were counted, whether they wished to be or not. The more diligent enumerator uh, made it their business to ferret out quite detailed information from neighbours or other family members about those who refused to fill in their forms. Take, for example, the case of Mrs. Mrs. Lottie Fairchild of Lowestoft, who kept a boarding house at 305 London Road South and on census night appears to have given shelter to 12 women keen to evade the census. The form has been filled up by the enumerator who has given details of Mrs Fairchild and her children together with the names and proxy ages of their servants and three of the evaders and recorded the presence of the remainder. A note on a second sheet makes clear that the enumerator gained the information from Mrs Fairchild's husband. But where was he on census night? Well, he'd been visiting a Mr Horace Ponder, a relative of his wife, a retired piano tuner who lived at nearby Alton Broad. And one can sense a story behind this census return, suggesting that domestic harmony might not have uh, reigned in the Fairchild household. <laughs> Mr Fairchild was a commercial traveller in drapery, and on the night of the previous census in 1901, when the family had been living in Southsea, he'd been away from home on business. However, in 1911, it looks as though Mr Fairchild, perhaps keen not to be seen as the head of a household that was refusing to comply with the census, went to stay the night with Mr Ponder, exchanging roosts with Mrs Ponder, who in turn wanted to evade the census and whose name has been, she's down, number nine down there, has been entered by the enumerator, Mrs Fairchild's census return. It so happens that although I wasn't searching for Mrs Ponder, I do know that she and her husband were suffering sympathisers because later that year, and it's quite coincidental that I should know this, in August... Um, later that year, the organiser from another suffrage society recorded in her diary that she went to Alton Broad and walked to Waldo Cottage to a Mr and Mrs Ponder where I had lunch. They are socialists, atheists, vegetarians and teetotalers. 
She is very nice. He is a great talker and talks well. Really very beautiful are his ideas, and I found them fearfully interesting, but he rather made me shudder. By 1914, Mrs. Ponder was secretary of the Lowestoft Constitutional Suffrage Society, presumably having by then rejected even the militancy of passive resistance. Of the other evaders spending the night under Mrs. Fairchild's roof, one, Mrs. Worthington, was the wife of a local doctor and a member of a well-established Lowestoft family. On census night, she had left him at home alone with his three young children and three servants. So... We can see that the enumerator didn't let a refusal to complete the census form prevent him providing figures for his registrar, though he may not have been able to provide answers to the more detailed questions, such as fertility, occupation, place of birth, etc. He ensured that the body count was not knowingly incorrect. Indeed, as many of these protesters were unmarried women whose fertility was not a matter of concern to the registrar-general, it was probably thought to matter little once counted whether or not their particulars were included. In fact, so diligent were the enumerators that a blank census form could return, result in the protester being counted not once but twice. The most notorious example is that of Emily Wilding Davison, whose exploit of spending census weekend in a cupboard in the chapel in the undercroft of the House of Commons uh, counted for a good deal of the newspaper coverage of the boycott in the immediate post-census days. After she was... Um, found in the afternoon of the 3rd of April, Monday. She was taken to Cannon Row, and although not charged, the police did provide a census form which she was duly entered, giving her address on census night as she had wished as the House of Commons. And that's this form. You can see it there. And uh, she clearly hadn't proffered much information to the Cannon Row questioner. Her age is wrong, as is her place of birth. Even her surname is incorrect, entered on, on the form as Davidson, with a D, um, however, she also appears on this census form, um, which was issued at her lodgings in Coram Street, Bloomsbury. This one was completed with Emily's full correct details. My interpretation of this form is that the landlady, Mrs Bateman, completed her own line of entry, and the enumerator, when he arrived to pick up the form after appropriate questioning of the landlady, entered Emily's details and changed the number of occupants from one to two. The handwriting of Emily's line is definitely that of the enumerator. As we know that Emily was not under the roof on census night, this form would appear to be the work of an overly officious enumerator. And to complicate matters further, Votes for Women reported that Emily Davison uh, declared that she'd refused to complete the census form issued to her at her home address and that she'd written across it, and this is one of the kind of her phrase, as I am a woman and women do not count in the state, I refuse to be counted. Rebellion against tyrants is obedience to God. However, if she did, uh, that form hasn't surfaced. I did wonder whether, if she'd written across the original form, the enumerator might not have scrapped that and issued Mrs. Bateman with a new unspoiled form to complete. I don't know whether that kind of thing could have happened, but perhaps somebody would know. Also, I'm not even sure if she the position she would have been as a lodger, whether she would have had a census form at all. So it's all a bit questionable there. The third point of view I like to consider is that of the contemporary public. What impact did these protesting forms have on them? Well, actually, as the forms were not public documents, uh, none at all. I doubt that they converted the operators of the Holyrith machines to the suffrage cause, and apart from the enumerator and registrars, they were the only ones to see them.
Although the suffragette newspapers did publish some of the comments written or said to have been written by individual protesters on their forms, the national and provincial press ignored this form of protest. In Votes for Women, Mrs Pankhurst claimed to have written no vote, no census across her census form. However, if she did, that form has not reappeared and as she didn't have a permanent residence at the time, it's difficult to, to see how she could have been issued with one. But although Mrs Pankhurst certainly uh, didn't comply uh, willingly with the census, she was counted, added by the manager to the census return of the Inns of Court Hotel Hoban, where she tended to stay when in London, when she returned there probably around 4am after taking part in the mass evasion organised by the WSPU in the nearby Aldwych skating rink. The fact that by annotating the forms, suffragettes generated very little publicity taken in conjunction with the fact that by writing across the forms of protesters alerted the authorities to their existence must lead us to question whether the suffrage societies had given good advice in this respect. My fourth angle on the protesting forms is our own. What do we make of them? How many women and men made such protests? Who are they? Actually, it's likely that some of the forms may be the only documents surviving to connect a woman to the suffrage campaign and as such provide us with an impetus to discover more about them. And the forms are interesting in giving a clue to an individual's thinking on the subject of women's suffrage at this one moment in time. Many of the societies, uh, many of the annotations take forms such as no vote, no census, and if women don't count, they won't be counted, that were suggested by the suffrage societies. But women such as Annie Ball use their own words to get their point across. As to how many made this protest, that's an open question. As the search continues, I'm gradually adding to the number, but so far, I mean, I'm rather ashamed to admit this, I've uncovered only around, well, less than 130 actual forms, though it may be that others, particularly those responsible for the digitising, could point out many, many more. And in fact, using the system here at the National Archives, the search engine is very much more sophisticated than Find My Past, and it is using a variety of techniques. It is uh, possible laboriously uh, to um, find them probably more quickly. Um, of course, the number of boycotters represented is considerably greater than that number because they include, as in Lottie Fairchild's return, a number of other protesters who I class as evaders and would discuss in a minute. So why have I managed to find so few forms? Well, they're actually rather difficult to locate in the system, because, mainly because the enumerators did such a good job of completing the information. Uh, they have checked all the more obvious women known to be active in the WSPU and the WFL, both at national and local level, and these form the core of the number I found. However, what uh, became glaringly obvious while doing this is that how little is known of the hundreds, probably thousands of women who took part in the suffrage movement at the grassroots level. For instance, it was estimated that between 12,000 and 20,000 women took part in the suffragette procession that marched through London on the 23rd of July 1910, I mean, just a few months before the census. But we don't know the names of most of those women or their birth year or their addresses, all necessary to locate a subject in the census. However, as I continue with the research, checking names that appear in suffragette newspapers and other primary docu documents, I'm slowly adding to this list of individual protesters. And I've used a variety of search techniques, such as if you put 1801 into the birth date, it throws up 
anyone for whom the enumerator didn't have an age, although that uh, you then got to search through them because they're either old or infirm or didn't want to say. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they're um, refusing information. Or by putting uh, Mrs. or Miss as a first name search, which again indicates the enumerator didn't have the full information. And by such tedious, tedious methods, I've identified some well, quite a few hitherto unknown suffragette protesters. I mean, for instance, even in the, especially on the National Archives um, search engine, if you just put suffragette into occupation, you have to put an initial letter for the name, so you have to go through the alphabet, you have to do that 26 times. Um, you do come up with a fair number. They haven't protested or evaded, but they're given their occupation as suffragette, which is quite interesting. Um, and... Um, and it's been possible using uh, the census summary pages available on Ancestry to find, uh, to find some. Um, for with Ancestry, unlike Find My Past, it's possible to browse through the pages of enumerator's books to find entries that have been amended or tagged by him in some way that might identify households where there's been some doubt about the numbers, although I will repeat it as a very laborious uh, um, way of going about things, but quite interesting. So let's now consider why women thought a census boycott would be a useful form of protest. The idea had first been mooted in June 1910 at a meeting of the Executive Committee of the Women's Freedom League. It stemmed from Mrs. Howe Martin's suggestion that if the conciliation bill were killed, a protest should be made and resulted in a unanimous uh, resolution that the form for immediate interference should be to boycott the census. And this was a novel idea. No group of campaigners would ever their cause had called for a boycott in any of the eight previous uh, decennial uh, national censuses. It was also rather satisfyingly appropriate that those who considered they were deprived of full citizenship would in this is instance refuse to act as citizens. In general, the WFL advocated passive resistance, the more symbolic the better, rather than the more direct, often physical action of the WSPU. The WFL leader, Mrs. Charlotte Despard, was a vegetarian and a theosophist who had met and been impressed by Gandhi. The WFL had, for instance, in 1909, organised a four-month silent vigil outside the House of Commons day and night in all weathers. I mean, rather like uh, Brian Hall's peace camp, though perhaps not so messy. And it was members of the WFL that first encouraged suffrage sympathisers to withhold taxes, a tactic so successful that, as we've seen, a Women's Tax Resistance League had been formed. The idea for the census boycott was held in abeyance until at the beginning of 1911, after the prorogation of Parliament, which effectively killed the conciliation bill and the subsequent general election, the WFL decided there was no mention of a government measure for women's suffrage in the King's speech at the opening of Parliament. They would proceed with their plans to boycott. In the event, the King's speech revealed that not only with the would there be no government measure, but the government didn't even intend to allow any time for private members' bills before Easter. And the suffrage societies, as I said before, had relied on the prospect of a private member reintroducing conciliation bill. Um, but parliamentary time at session was to be devoted to bills for home rule and reform of the House of Lords, bills uh, with appeal to the Labour Party and the Irish Nationalists, on whose support the Liberals relied. Um, and once again, women saw themselves ignored. So the 11th of February edition of the WFL's paper, The Vote, claimed on the cover, boycott the census, 
and inside Edith Howe Martin devoted a leader to the subject. As she explained, any government which refuses to recognise women must be met by women's refusal to recognise the government. Of the census, she wrote, we intend to do our best to make it unreliable and inaccurate and so far as women are concerned, so wrong and with so many omissions that is essentially misleading. No WSPU records survive and it's now only by reading uh, Votes for Women that we can trace how they came to join in the boycott. In fact, it was not until the 24th of February issue that the WSPU really launched their campaign with one of their leaders, Emily Pethick Lawrence, justifying the census boycott by linking it to stories current in the press of domestic abuse and the need for laws to protect women. Thus, by the end of February, the WFL and the WSPU were united behind the boycott. However, the Constitutional Society, the NUWSS, would have nothing to do with it. National and provincial newspapers were quick to spread the word of the proposed boycott. On the 13th of February, the Times published the wording of the WFL Census Manifesto, and this is the manifesto is issued. Although the paper made no comment, the next day it published a letter from Professor Michael Sadler, an educationalist, a liberal, and a supporter of the constitutional suffrage campaign, protesting strongly against the idea of the boycott, calling the proposal, because the protesters would willfully affect the statistics to be drawn from the census returns, as a sin against science. And Mrs. Edith Howe Martin immediately responded with a letter in the following day's Times, insisting that for women to take part in the census or to pay taxes willingly when governed without their, sent, uh, without their consent was a crime against liberty. The vote when discussing the sin against science issue pointed out that scientists, by barring women from their learned societies, sinned in their own way. Uh, by the 17th of March, the Times had made its decision about the merits of the boycott, publishing a leader fulminating against it. This, in turn, drew a letter from Emmeline Pankhurst, in which she stated that it was only after a long and full consideration, I'm not sure about that, but that's what she said, that the National Committee of the WSPU had decided to adopt this form of protest, stressing that it was because the WSPU knew from actual experience how inadequate and unjust the laws concerning women were that they wanted the vote. She ended by saying that all that was required to stop the boycott was a pledge from the government to give the facilities for the passing into law of the conciliation bill which had by now been introduced by Sir, John, Sir George Kemp, an MP, and the second reading of which uh, was now fixed for the 5th of May. In the provinces, the proposed boycott caused heated debate in some papers, but the Bradford Daily Telegraph commended the boycott as more ladylike than butting a policeman in Parliament Square, while the Yorkshire Post thought that as statistics are inevitably inaccurate, a little more inaccuracy cannot seriously matter. From February to April, Votes for Women and the Vote kept the idea of the boycott in front of their readers, imaginative articles alternating with factual information which, uh, both about the niceties involved in evading uh, the census or refusing directly to take part. And as the date approached, of some of the plans that had been laid for mass evasions. Whereas at first much had been made about writing protests on the census form or indeed tearing it up, by early March, the emphasis was very much more on evasion, by which means boycotters would remain technically constitutional. So let's now consider the mass evasions that in the event caught the imagination of the national as well as the suffrage press. For a day or two after census night, papers were full of stories of darkened houses packed with sleeping evaders 
midnight feasts and hijinks. The Daily Mirror published photographs of sleeping women. This photograph. Uh, There were several, in fact. Um, Sleeping women exhausted after attending the all-night entertainment organised by the WSPU and WFL. Like Mrs Pankhurst, the women had late in the evening gone on from Trafalgar Square to the Aldwych skating rink in the Strand to roller skate while hopefully evading the enumerator, and after that had had the opportunity to eat, eat an early vegetarian breakfast in nearby Gardin, the, the nearby Gardenia restaurant before catching on, up on some sleep in one of the houses that had been offered for this purpose. This, the largest of the mass evasions, was noticed on Monday morning by the Times, although only after it told its readers of the excellent example the King and Queen had set by their careful and accurate filling up of the census form. Naturally, uh, the suffragette newspapers gave the census night evasions quite a splash. One of the more memorable adventures they recounted was that of Arthur Marshall, the WSP's solicitor, who, with his wife Kitty, and nine women rented what was described as a smart Pullman caravan. Uh, well, in fact, there's more than one couple, I think. Uh, horse-drawn, of course, from a, they rented from a Paddington firm, Rickards. They drove them round Trafalgar Square while the protest rally was underway and then down Whitehall, eventually coming to a halt on Putney Common. There they had a jolly dinner and refused, as they, so they reported, all information to the police who turned up to take their particulars. In the morning, they decorated their caravans with placards saying, if we don't count, we shall not be counted, and thus adorned, travelled back to London. But although this excursion doubtless attracted publicity, the police knew quite well who the leaders of that suffragette party, as they described it, were, and their details were duly entered on a census form. And here you can see this is the enumerator's book, and right at the bottom, Mr and Mrs Marshall Caravan Putney Heath. And in Bristol, too, a caravan parked on the Downs was used on census night to shelter a few suffragettes. Although the Times merely mentioned in passing that women at York, Bradford, Leeds, Edinburgh and other places had taken concerted measures to attempt to evade the census, the provincial daily press expanded on their local stories. The Manchester Guardian carried an atmospheric uh, report on the goings-on at the house in Manchester's Victoria Park, that had been rented for the weekend by the WSP organiser, Jesse Stevenson. And the very fact that photographs such as this, I mean, that was taken on the night, and those published by the Daily Mirror were taken, indicates the suffragettes were well aware of the usefulness of this form of publicity. In Sheffield, for instance, an anonymous male newspaper proprietor, he's, he's down at the bottom somewhere, yes, Yes, I think he's the very last one, newspaper proprietor, um, is enumerated along with 38 women in a mass evasion organised by Helen Archdale and Adela Pankhurst, who was Emmeline's third daughter. In the immediate aftermath of the census, provincial daily reporters, reported, daily papers reported in other all-night sessions. In York, there was singing and supper. In Bradford, fortune-telling, whist and patience. And in Chatham, so much noise was made by the dancing of the evaders, uh, thought to be 39 women and one man, that the police were called to investigate. This then attracted the attention of the enumerator, who was able to record the numbers. <laughs> the census boycott was therefore, for a couple of days, a newsworthy item in the, lo- in the daily press, 
Although local papers uh, published weekly gave it very little attention, it was already old news by the time they were published. So from the protesters' viewpoint, to join a mass evasion was an enjoyable way of making a protest, while having the satisfaction of seeing that they generated another spurt of nationwide publicity for their cause. As for the enumerators, um, as we've seen, many did make an effort to count those they knew to be attempting to evade the census. And this is the census return for that house where we saw all the women on the stairs. In Manchester, the enumerator was very sure of his figures, 52 men and 155 women. In some towns, enumerators were helped by the police. In Bath, for example, they assisted in the the counting of the 36 women who spent the night in a house that the WSPU organiser rented in one of the city's famed Georgian crescents. And uh, it says, no ladies, they suffragettes and fuse information. Um, And in London, it was the police who were reported to have taken the head count at the Aldwych Rink. Incidentally, it's therefore quite possible that Mrs Pankhurst was counted there as well as at her hotel. But not all mass evasions were as public as those in uh, London and Manchester. Some appear to have been entirely successful. For instance, earlier on I showed you the census forms of Annie Ball and Hertha Ayrton, both of whom apparently hid from the enumerator the fact that they were giving shelter to other women on census night. Hertha Ayrton, um, there was a, a biography of uh, Hertha Ayrton written by um, a friend, another woman who'd been a, a, boyc- a boycotter, a protester. Uh, she said in her um, biography that uh, Hertha Ayrton had... Uh, packed as many as 40 into her commodious uh, Paddington house on that night. But there's nothing on the, the form. The enumerator apparently didn't know about it. Other organised mass, mass evasions, uh, such as ones at Ipswich or Bradford, which were held in non-residential property, were not recorded by the enumerators. On reading the newspaper stories of mass evasions, the contemporary public would have been amused at the efforts to thwart the enumerator and registered at some level that women were doing this because they wanted the vote. And today we can see that by creating publicity, the mass evasions did achieve a measure of success for the census boycott. Tantalising, of course, for us, we'll never know who these women were and how many of them are included in my next category, the individual evader. Many were married women living with their husbands or daughters living at home. Women such as this one, um, Mrs Annie... Yes, this is Mrs Annie Higgins, a Sheffield WFL member who was the wife of a steel uh, table fork forger. And here he is at home on census night with only his two young daughters for company. We're left in no doubt about the reason for the absence of his wife. The enumerator has explained that she is evading. Can you read it? Wife evading census. Um, and was she one of the women who spent uh, the night at 45 Mulberry Road in Sheffield, which was the evasion organised by Adelaide Pankhurst? And there's probably uh, little uh, doubt that Mrs Pickering, a Peckham WFM member, was also boycotting her husband, Herbert, a milk vendor, who spent a census night at home on his own, wrote in his form that he had a wife, but that her whereabouts and age were unknown. <laughs> <laughs> And here is another form, that of Mr. Abraham of Birkenhead. If you can see it, Alfred Abraham. 
Uh, you can see he's a married man and he was at home on census night with his two sons, a son-in-law and two servants. But where's his wife? So happens that I do know where she was because the diary of Mrs. Alice Kerr, a Birkenhead doctor, has survived. And in that, she gives details of the mass evasion she organised in Birkenhead and names Mrs. Abraham as one of their number. In fact, I see now that perhaps her married daughter had left her husband with his father-in-law and joined her mother in evading the enumerator. But I don't know enough about her, so she's one of these mystery evaders. Now, in these cases, I have the proof that the missing woman was evading with intent, but it's not always possible uh, to be so certain. And what about... Mrs. Sarah Mustard, a Hackney WFL member who lived at 49 Moresby Road, Clapton. I know her full name and other details that would identify her, and she appears nowhere else on the census returns for England and Wales. Her husband, a teacher, was at home on census night with two of his three children, daughters aged 6 and 12. Was Mrs. Mustard evading the enumerator? Had she perhaps taken a third child, perhaps an older daughter, with her, or was she for some reason out of the country in Scotland or Ireland or across the Channel or was she elsewhere and in England on census night and her name incorrectly uh, transcribed? I would suggest that Mrs Mustard and many other missing women I have found or not found is a census evader but can't be certain. We at least know she is missing. The Registrar-General did not. It's more difficult to find examples of poor working women resisting or more likely evading, but they are there, or not there. Nora Connell, a milliner in her late 20s who lived with her grandparents in Bow, on the 4th of February, see, right just at that time, the boycott, wrote a letter published in Votes for Women. Helpfully, her exact address is given, and I could check that she is absent from the census. But can we presume she was evading? The suffragette newspapers had encouraged entire households to evade the census, advice followed by one Q family, the Claytons, who lived along Q Road. They were leaders of the WFL in this area. Mr Clayton was later imprisoned on charges of conspiracy to damage property. He was an analytical chemist uh, and was thought to have given suffragettes information on how to create explosives. Householder evaders, like the Claytons, were encouraged to leave their blank census forms for the enumerators so that he would realise that their absence was not accidental. And incidentally, if on the way back to uh, the tube uh, station at Kew, if you were to go past 25 West Park Road, that is a house in which there was an evader or not an evader on census night. There was a woman, Eileen Casey, who should have been there but wasn't. That's the nearest I can offer you. But it was not always easy to be an evader. In her diary, one suffrage organiser, this is the one who knew Mr Ponder that I mentioned before, anyway, she was in Malden in Essex on um, census night staying in uh, in a pub and lodgings and uh, she wrote in her diary, and I did not go down in the census, but in fact the landlady of the pub had put her down, so... So how many evaders were there? As you can appreciate, it's really possible to know. I've found, as it were, over 300 individuals whom I think were evading on census night. However, I'm certain there were many, many more. The evader had the satisfaction in knowing she'd followed her society's instructions, had defied the government, and would not cause the head of the household to incur a fine. Enumerators were presumably unaware of the great majority of the individual absences, the evasions, Certainly, in a city 
there was little reason for a woman's absence from a household or from her flat or house to be remarked. It may have been different in smaller communities where everyone's business was known. That may well account for the fact that of the 311 evaders I tentatively identify, over half are in London. These evasions, while giving private satisfaction, by their very nature attracted no publicity and didn't impinge on the contemporary public. The final category of women touched by the census boycott are, counterintuitively, women who actually complied with the census requirements. For when Dr Liddington and I began our research into the boycott, we were struck by the number of known suffragettes who ignored the boycott call. Obviously, there were many women who were happy to attend suffrage meetings or walk in a procession, but who were not prepared to defy the law or indeed defy the head of her household. One can well imagine that a wife or daughter living at home, entirely financially reliant on her husband or father, might feel able to send a small donation to the WSP or WFL, but not to insist on being omitted from the census return. Dave Annell alerted us to the existence of a woman who did try. Eleonora mourned. In fact, Audrey tells me that she's put it outside, so you can actually study it. Her husband, who was an erstwhile African explorer and many years older than her, had entered her name and details on the census form. She then apparently crossed through her name and written at the bottom of the form, Wife Away, but her husband must have intercepted the schedule and in red pen wrote the following explanation. My wife, unfortunately being a suffragette, underline, put her pen through her name, but it must stand as correct, it being an equivocation to say she is away, she being always resident here and is only attempted by a silly subterfuge to defeat the object of the census to which as head of the family I object, EA mourned. (laughs) One can only imagine the atmosphere in that household. But this didn't explain why women who'd already shown themselves committed to the cause, having, for instance, gone to prison, were prepared to comply with the census. We suggested their decision may have been influenced by their belief that the information to be derived from this census, particularly as it related to the future provision of welfare, in this instance took precedence over the demand for the vote. For the sin against science debate had created considerable attention in both the suffrage and the national press, For with this census, the statistics relating to women were of particular importance. The health of the nation's children and the fertility of its mothers being at the time of such concern to the government, the decision had been taken to include new questions on the 1911 census paper. A married woman was now required to supply, through the head of the household, details of the number of years she'd been married, the number of children born to that marriage, and the number of children still alive. And I'm sure you've all found that immensely useful and even of course so many men of course just automatically filled it in on their own line so that even though the wife wasn't there you can get the information anyway and these questions the fertility survey resulted from the desire the superintendent of statistics at the general register office to test eugenic uh, assumptions about class fertility well aware that this was tendentious territory the census committee advised enumerators that you must be very careful to avoid giving offences when putting any question that may be necessary in reference to these columns. And back in June 1910, when it broached the idea of a census boycott, the WFL had known nothing of these new questions. They are first mentioned in the WFL's uh, paper, The Vote, only a month before the boycott call, in a speech to a WFL meeting in Caxton Hall. 
Discussing the fertility or eugenic controversy, the Speaker declared, women are clamouring for entrance to the legislature because, amongst other reasons, they are weary of being castigated for a condition of things over which they have little or no control. Better off women are blamed for not producing enough children and the less well-off for failing to keep alive the children that, often most unwillingly, they have brought into the world. In early March, two women doctors argued that point in the correspondence columns of the NUWS paper, The Common Cause. The elder, Dr Helen Wilson, a member of a Sheffield family with a long and distinguished history of support for liberal causes, argued that the boycott would hinder social reform. The other, Dr Mabel Ramsey of Plymouth, advocated the boycott because... The inclusion of the additional questions, especially asked of married women, in themselves call for a special protest because it is well known that certain members of the government wish to obtain statistical information regarding the effect of married women's work in factories on the question of infant mortality with the idea of introducing fresh legislation and thereby further penalising the working women and giving the trade unions the excuses they want to turn on the married women out the married women from the labour market. Interestingly, Helen Wilson specifically mentioned that it was because of the very size um, of the suffrage movement that a call to boycott the census would be expected to have a devastating effect on the results. In the event, it's no surprise to discover that uh, she complied with the census and Dr Ramsey did not. As I've mentioned, the NUWSS didn't back the boycott and nor did other women's groups such as the Women's Cooperative Guild or the Fabian Women's Group all of whom used, at least in part, the argument that women had a duty to cooperate to ensure the future of the nation's health. The fact that Mrs Emma Sproson, chairman of the Wolverhampton branch of the WFL, who already twice gone to prison and would so again comply with the census, made us question the compliance more closely. Had she and many others been influenced by the argument that to interfere with the statistic would jeopardise future welfare programmes? We came to the conclusion this was certainly a possibility. On the other hand, we didn't find any member of the WSP or WFL specifically saying that though militant in other respects, it was for this reason she was going to comply. But nor did suffragettes say publicly they were going to comply because, for instance, they were worried about incurring the £5 fine or of being penalised by their employer. Having investigated the variety of ways in which suffragettes reacted to the dilemma set by the call to boycott the census, Let's look at the result of this brief campaign of civil disobedience. For why should a woman be expected to supply census information when she was not considered capable or worthy of marking a ballot paper at a parliamentary election? You may remember that the wording is advocated here. This is a sort of cartoon from uh, the Votes for Women paper. Um, You see here the wording is very similar and the idea behind it is identical to Hertha Ayrton's comment that I quoted at the beginning of this talk. Well, the government had an easy answer. In reply to a question in the House of Commons on Wednesday the 5th of April as to whether the suffragette agitation against the census is likely to affect prejudicially the accuracy of our statistics, John Byrne simply replied that it would not, that the number who evaded was negligible. When he was then asked if those who deliberately evaded the census would, as the law required, be charged, he said that they wouldn't, that in the hour of success, mercy and magnanimity must be shown. The suffragette societies immediately claimed victory. They'd boycotted the census and escaped punishment. 
But in fact, even before the census was taken, the governor made clear that it was keen to avoid bringing prosecutions. On the 28th of March, John Burns wrote to Winston Churchill, the Home Secretary, asking Metropolitan Police in London to help enumerators in dealing with what he knew from the press was the proposed mass evasion in Aldwych. He made no mention of similar plans elsewhere in the country, explained that a rough enumeration of the persons gathering in the selected building is all that is desired. I may add that if this plan of countering the movement can be made a success, the necessity of prosecuting prosecuting any large number of persons in default may be obviated and the main object of the suffragists may be thus defeated. The government had shown a similar willingness to avoid prosecutions when it had failed to bring charges against 200 women arrested during a demonstration in Parliament Square in November, the previous November. In that case, it was thought the large number of prosecutions would only have reflected badly on the police while giving the women another platform for stating their cause. It is likely that in the first days of April 1911, the government took the same decision for a similar reason. It seems doubtful that by the 5th of April, John Burns can have had any real idea of the extent of the suffrage boycott. Certainly, he can have had no idea at all, as we do not have now, of the number of individual evaders. And as for the protesters, we can see that instructions from the Registrar General about how to treat protesting forms were sent out to the registrars over the course of the two weeks following the census. And again, John Burns could have not have known the extent of the, the, this form of protest by the 5th of April. I don't know whether or not the Registrar-General kept any tally of the number of forms about which he was alerted, but if he did, it doesn't appear to have survived. For when the report on the 1911 census was finally published at the very end of 1916, it contained no mention whatsoever of the suffragette boycott. And that was the weakness of the boycott plan. However much the women protested in this way, as in so many others, the government held the trump card. It could ignore them. And that, of course, was exactly why women considered it so important that they should be able to cast their own vote. Okay. Anyway, I think you can all go and have your tea now. (laughs) This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.